Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another Crime Curious episode. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And today we are going to talk about the very controversial case of Christopher Frank Pittman. Do you know anything about this? I do, do you not. remember it? You, you are coming in hot with a case that I am not familiar with. Well, I will just start off with saying this was interesting to me because this particular perpetrator was only 12 years old when he committed his crimes. Oh, oh no. Yeah. By the time he is released from prison, which is set to happen very soon, 2023, he will have spent 22 of his 34 years of life in prison. Wow. That's kind of scary to think about. He was raised in prison. Yes. So there's there's some specifics. So strap in, guys, because... Shit's going to get wild. Let me let me put my seatbelt on mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. So Christopher Frank Pittman was born April 9th, 1989 in Huntsville, excuse me, Huntsville. That's kind of hard to say. Alabama. Oh my gosh, he's younger than us. He is. Sorry to cut you no, off, but he I know, I thought the same thing when crazy. I was typing it. I was like, "Oh, carry on." Heart. So he was born to Joe Pittman. And Hazel Pittman. Now, one of the victims' names in this is also Joe Pittman. So when I am referring to Christopher's father, I'm going to call him Joe Jr. Okay. Just so you guys know. And when I'm referring to his grandfather, who unfortunately is a victim in this case, I am going to refer to him as Joe Sr. Now, an article on ChristopherPittman.org because there is such a thing. This this case was so controversial that there were a lot of people advocating for Christopher and a lot of people saying, no, he was just a cold-blooded murderer. Oh, okay. We'll, so we'll get to it. Okay? okay. Christopher's parents were very young. They met in 1986. Now remember, he was born in 89. So his parents met in 1986 in Wildwood High School. That's in Florida. His father was a sophomore and his mother was a freshman, and they had their first child, Danielle, the next year. So his mother, Hazel, was 16 when she had Danielle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Joe joined the Army, and they moved to Alabama in 1988, and then Christopher came the following year in 89, as I said before. It was only six weeks after having Christopher that Hazel left Joe. What? Didn't see that coming. No. Unfortunately, Joe was away in the military, so she left baby Christopher and Danielle in the care of her own mother, Delnora Dupre. She goes by Del. By October of the following year, after abandoning Christopher and Danielle, their mother Hazel had bore another son with a different father, one that Del would later adopt and raise. Wow, so there's a lot going on here already. There's a lot. In 1991, Joe Jr. returned from Desert Storm and moved back to Alabama, where he was stationed with the kids. And then in December 1991, when he was discharged, they moved into Joe and Joy Pittman's home in Oxford, Florida. So that is Joe Jr.'s parents' house. So just so you guys are clear, 
there's been a, a lot of moving around. His mom abandons him. He's got to move in with Grandma Dell. Mm-hmm. Dad's away. Then Dad comes back. So they move back to Alabama because he's stationed there, but only for so many months. And then now they're moving to Oxford, Florida. He's very young at this point. It's only 91. In 1992, their father had remarried, but separated only a year later. So they had to move out of the Pittman's home and then with their dad when they remo- bleh, when he remarried. And then they moved right back in. Lots of inconsistency yes. for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Pittmans were referred to as Nana and Pop Pop. And I just love that. And I am going to lift my shoulders and say it like that every time I say Pop Pop. <laughs> I just <laughs> love it. Could we get one more time? A Pop Pop. Uh, I like it. Yeah. Perfect. He is, he is Pop Pop. And <laughs> when I post pictures, because there is a picture of Christopher with Pop Pop. When you guys read it, I would really love for you to read it like that. And say it out loud. I know you're doing it right now. You're saying it. I'm doing it in my head right now. Absolutely. Pop, pop. Nana and Pop, pop provided the most stability and were the most nuclear-type family experience that Christopher ever has and ends up having, okay? Christopher and his Pop, pop had an especially close relationship. They would hunt, they would fish, they would tinker with things by taking them apart and putting them back together. And Joy did all the mothery type things like cook and laundry and drive the kids around. And, you know, per the use, the dad gets the fun stuff, the mom gets the shitty ass chores. They sound like a good old fashioned couple. Yes, absolutely. They, And by all accounts, they were lovely human beings and just very good old American people. The kids and Joe Jr., so that is the children's father, did eventually get a place of their own, but it was only a few miles away, so the kids would still see Nana and Pop Pop daily, especially since they help with the caretaking of the children, you know, from day to day. Now jump ahead to 1996. Joe Pittman Jr. remarried, and this time two daughters came with the package. This was a really hard transition for Christopher to make, and remember, he's not seen his own mother really ever in his life. Yeah, she left when he was... Six weeks old. Yeah, mm-hmm. just and born. At this point, his dad is now on his third marriage. So in 1997, Christopher's eight, and at this time, Danielle's ten. Joe and Joy built their retirement home in Chester, South Carolina, which was nearly 500 miles away from Oxford, Florida. And they moved away. However, they did still see the children regularly and were still a really large part of their life. This was extremely difficult for Christopher, as he had already suffered so much turmoil and change and transitioning. And now his his fast and steady, Nana and Pop Pop, are 500 miles away. Jump forward. We were in 97. Now we're going to jump forward to 2001. I was listening to some Destiny's Child and definitely a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. Good times, good times. Joe Pittman is now divorcing his third wife, and suddenly Hazel, remember her? Christopher and Danielle's mother arrives in Florida for a two-week vacation to visit her mother, Dell. She decided to come shortly after giving birth to her seventh child. Oh, my God. Yes, that is a lot of children to bear in a vagina. What in the... That is a lot for a vag (laughs) to endure. It is. And if any of your listeners have... God bless you. Yeah. You are. Bless you. Mm -hmm. Kudos to you. 
Now, oh, these poor kids, though. The two-week vacation, however, that she was supposed to be taking, lasted much longer, and Joe and Hazel started to make sexy eyes at one another again. Oh, don't tell me. Oh, yeah. Finally, after all this time, it would appear that Christopher and Danielle would have their real mother. Hazel rented a mobile home and had four of her other children in her care at that time. So if we want to do the math, she's got her four chitlins with her. Then there's Danielle and Christopher. Christopher, And then the one son that was born shortly after Christopher that Del has been raising. Okay. So that actually... Carry the two. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there's so many kids. That was hilarious. That is seven children. Okay, so we have them all accounted for we at do. least. We do. And because I was wondering, I'm like, where are yes, all these kids that at? that is the point that I wanted to make. Okay. When you saw me using my fingers, though, and struggling with math, I appreciate the way that you really helped. <laughs> I was doing it in my you head. Are, like, yes. how many that was children? That was good. We have all the kids. There's a kitten caboodle, as my mom would say. I don't know what that means, but I feel like it was fitting right there. So Joe told, or excuse me, so she told Joe Jr. that she was separated from her husband. Uh-huh. And she got to know Christopher and Danielle. Her and Danielle shared clothes. She met their friends. All of that happy horseshit. Uh-huh. Also a saying my mom, mama likes to say. I'm just, I'm, I want to be excited. I'm not, though. I'm right. Not. You can feel it. What'd you say in a previous episode? I can feel your big butt coming. <laughs> That's where we're at. Did I say that? You said I feel I like, like you've got I a butt. That. I you like said, it. You told me once I feel like you've got a butt, and I said I've got a big That's butt. That's a big one. Yeah, so just okay. from now on, so I want to let you know when my big butt's coming. Do we have a, another big, big old badunk coming? Here it comes, which right. is actually funny because I have the ass of a 12-year-old boy. By October of 2001, Joe Jr. and the kids arrived at Hazel's trailer and she was telling them to take their shit that they had left because she wasn't going to see them anymore. I'm sorry, what? Uh-huh. Yep. Like, what is that, like, squeaky noise that a turntable makes? <laughs> when you stop. <laughs> that, yes, that exact <laughs> noise. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. It seems that her husband was threatening to take custody of the four children she had had in her care. I'm sorry. I'm still laughing about the fact that I'm going to have to edit this episode and listen to myself <laughs> make that noise over and over again. I, I like the noise. I think God. it should stay. So it seems that her husband was, uh, Hazel's current husband, was threatening to take the custody of the four kids that she had in her care. And she wasn't going to lose her kids over them. You know, over the her other, other kids. kids. Uh-huh. What the fuck, Hazel? I hate you, Hazel. I'm not liking Hazel. Oh, that's... Hazy, 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 haze. (sighs) This isn't okay. These poor children. Right, right. Christopher was struggling with his relationship with his father. He was grounded because his grades... His dad did hold them to a really high standard with grades. So he had, at this point in time, in October of 2001, he had all of his privileges revoked. And then his biological mother abandons him once again. In a 48-hour interview that Christopher later did, he made claims that his father was physically abusive as well, but this is something that his father adamantly denies. I'm not convinced, Joe Okay. Okay, so you think there might have been some abuse? We will get to it, absolutely. Referring back to an article on ChristopherPittman.org, within days of his mother's second abandonment, Christopher took $70 and a backpack and ran away 
The day earlier, he had actually asked his sister which way was north. He was on his way to Chester, South Carolina to live with Nana and Papa. Mm -hmm. My my heart does kind of hurt for Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, this this is going to be a tough case for you. He left at 11 p.m. on October 23rd, 2001, and was found the next morning at an Arby's just 15 miles away. That's 15 miles by foot at night. For a For a 12-year-old? Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that's a long way. Soon after being returned to his father, Chris grabbed a knife and threatened to kill himself in front of his sister, Danielle, claiming, quote, I would rather die than live in this house with you and your dad, end quote. He wanted to live with his grandparents. Oh. His father said that he was committed to Lifestreams Behavioral Center in Leesburg, Florida for a few days. Doctors had diagnosed him as clinically depressed and put him on Paxil, an antidepressant widely used to treat depression in adults, but not approved for people under 18. Okay. Yes. After the suicide attempt, his dad did give in and allowed him to live with his grandparents in Chester. They made that move in November 2001. Christopher Pittman is 12 years old. He's 5'2 and 96 pounds. So literally he is my size. I've got three pounds on the kid, but we're the same height, which is why I always say that I have the ass of a 12-year-old boy. There is the proof. That's where it comes There it is. Gotcha. So he's a child and he's built like a child and he's taking medication that's not approved for children. Mm-hmm. Upon moving to Chester, South Carolina, his grandparents enrolled him in the local school district, established him with a doctor, basically doing all the normal damn things, right? However, the doctor changed Christopher's antidepressant medication to Zoloft, which is also not approved for the use of children. Can I ask, I mean... Was there a problem with the meds? Were they not working? It was never specified. But if you think about this, he was put on the Paxil in October. You and I both know through our careers that antidepressants can take three to four weeks before really kicking in. So I'm wondering if it was more of um, a location issue. You know, they are 500 miles away. He was established, I I mean, I did read reports that he was established with a new pediatrician, so it could possibly just be that the pediatrician was like, this is the kid in my care now, I don't like Paxil, or it's not easy to get here, or insurance, whatever, Okay, we're going to Zoloft. It was never really, really outlined like that. Okay. Like, oh, this isn't working, so we're going to, because he was prescribed the Paxil when he, after he um, ran away, okay, and he was... So how long was he on the Paxil, approximately? Not even a month. That's because that was in October. Okay? He ran away October 20th. Or he was found October 23rd. He ran away October 22nd. Now we're into the beginning of November. I mean, he was not on this medication, Paxil, at all. And then is switched to Zoloft. That does throw me off a little bit. I mean, that's a really very brief time to be on a medication like that and just switch. switch. That's why I'm wondering if it was... More of like an insurance issue, given the proximity of where, you know, of their location, something to do with the move, something like that. I'm not, I'm unsure. And if you guys know, write us. Yeah. Really nicely. Yeah, it would be nice to know. Yeah. So this seemingly small decision leads to one of the most controversial trials in South Carolina history. On November 28th, Christopher Pittman had a really difficult day. It's a Wednesday. I did look it up, by the way. He had been in trouble on the school bus for attempting to harm a much younger child. Some reports said that he was choking an eight-year-old. Others just claimed that he was fighting with another child. Anyway, he was in trouble with Nana and Pop-Pop, for sure. 
And that same evening, the family went to church. That's why I looked it up because I was like, hold on. They're going to church and he was in school on the same day. It has mm. to be a Wednesday, right? My grandma has Wednesday evening I'm, church too. I know. I know. So they did as well. And Chris was kicking the back of the piano bench when the pianist was trying to play. Joe Sr. and Joy left church early because of his behavior. Now, later, the pastor would tell 48 Hours that he knew Christopher as he visited his grandparents frequently, and he was a well-mannered, gregarious, and shy child, but once you got to know him, you saw his fun-loving side. The pastor said that when Christopher came to live with Joe and Joy Pittman in November, he was not the same child that he once knew. Having to leave the church service early on the evening of November 28th, 2001, is a prime example of what the pastor was referring to. Once Christopher and the Pittmans returned home, Christopher was disciplined for his behavior. Four hours later, their home was on fire. What? He set the house on fire? We're about to get to it. A 48 Hours episode called Prescription for Murder, they did a really nice piece on this, reported that on the night of November 28th, 2001, Christopher Pittman had left his bed in the home that he shared with his Nana and Pop Pop the place he had just weeks earlier been running away to. Yeah. He grabbed his Pop Pop's 410 shotgun, the very same gun that Pop Pop had actually given Christopher's dad on his dad's 10th birthday. And the gun that just that Thanksgiving, it's November 28th, so Thanksgiving had to have at most been a week, you know, the week Mm -hmm. prior. Yeah. Joe Jr., Christopher's dad, had actually gifted to Christopher. So it started, the gun started it's off. It's like a family. Uh-huh. It's a family heirloom. It started off as Pop Pops. Pop Pop gave it to Joe Jr. Days then, earlier, Joe gives it to Chris. Oh my God. An article from ChristopherPittman.org stated that the gun was loaded with birdshot. If you don't know what that is, it means the bullets scramble, making it easier to hit a moving target like a bird in flight. Christopher walked into his grandparents' bedroom, and while they were sleeping, in the dark, he stood at close range, and he fired the first shot into Joe Frank Pittman's open mouth, and then fired a second shot into the back of Joy Pittman's head. Oh my gosh. There were four shots total fired, and Joe and Joy Pittman did not survive. I know. His Nana and Pop Pop. My heart. I know. This is a hard one. This is so hard. This is so sad. This was difficult for me to write because I have a 12-year-old <sighs> who is the smiliest, sweetest little boy. And so to picture him in a place where he's doing this. To is, his grandparents that you know that he does love. love. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so many things going mm-hmm. on too. The meds, the right. trauma. the. So next, Christopher took candles from the upstairs medicine cabinet and surrounded the cam- the candles with gasoline from the four-wheelers that he used to enjoy with his pop-pop. And he put it on some papers and, like, stuffed some papers around the candles. He lit the candles so that it would burn slowly and that he would have plenty of time to get away. He put an arsenal of his grandfather's guns in the couple's black Nissan Pathfinder, along with money and the family's golden retriever, Christy. And he drove away, leaving the two people his family would later claim that he loved most in the world to burn. Wait, he can drive too? Well, I will tell you about that. 
One of the things that he enjoyed doing with at Nana and Pop Pops is driving their vehicle up and down their very long driveway. Okay. Which I grew up on a very long driveway, and I, too, was allowed to do that. By the time I was in driver's training, I had already drove vehicles and tractors, and it was like nothing to take driver's training. Oh, nice. So... I was told to stay off back roads when I started. I didn't have that experience. I was raised on back roads, so I was basically told stay out of the city. It's a dangerous place. Yeah. But there's there's cars in the city. So the 911 call came in that Joe and Joy Pittman's house was ablaze. When the fire was out and they recovered only two bodies, it was very obvious that the fire had not caused their deaths. Police started to look for Christopher Pittman for the second time in just a matter of weeks. So here this 12-year-old is driving a vehicle, which, like I said, is not unusual to him. He made it about 40 miles before getting stuck. I do also want to say kudos to him for taking the dog. Anytime that a dog comes up in one of our true crime cases, I'm just like, well, please don't let the oh, dog yeah. die. yeah. If the dog dies, it's uh, it's an unforgivable I don't know that situation. I can cover dog killing cases. Uh, so, on October 29th, around 10 a.m., two hunters named Rolling Pennington. That is an awesome name. We love a good name here that on Crime Curious. a really unique name. Hey, I'm Rolling Pennington. Yeah, it's just good. Yeah. I just like it. And Taylor Robinson. Nothing against your name, dude, but Rolling's a lot it's better. It's not as cool. It's not, but we still we'll like you. It. We still like you. They found the Pathfinder stuck with the 12-year-old boy inside. If you think about the timeline here and the fact that he only made it 40 miles, I believe that he must have pulled off at some point to sleep or possibly when he pulled off to sleep, that's when it got the vehicle got stuck. But the dog was nearby when the hunters found him. So it's possible that he'd actually stopped to sleep at some point and then started again and then got stuck when he was stopping to let the dog out to go to the bathroom. And maybe he had to go too. I don't know. Or possibly being only 12 and... Very little driving experience. Maybe he just... Was done. You know, yeah, he, yeah, he could have been it, done. It most definitely was stuck. I did see some pictures of it. Christopher Pittman told the hunters that a 6'2 black man had killed his grandparents and kidnapped him and left him there. Which fucking pisses oh, me Christopher. off. That he says it's a black Putting man. Putting a label, oh, yeah. Oh, it makes not me sick. Cool. Not cool. The, the hunters felt that he was acting very strangely because he did not act like someone who had just went through everything that he had said he went through. His grandparents getting killed and getting kidnapped. Uh-huh. Okay, he's not acting right. He showed no emotions at all. Plus, there was no man in sight and the vehicle had guns and money inside and the boy's dog. Most kidnappers would not have taken the dog. All signs point to something a little suspicious. So they called the police. The story that Chris told the police was so detailed that initially the police believed him, but they were suspicious. The dog especially made them very suspicious. Words are hard. (laughs) Words are hard. But the dog made them suspicious. He was cool and calm the entire afternoon in police custody. By 5 p.m. that evening, he had started to unravel. And he confessed to a police investigator, Lucinda McKellar. She goes by Lucy. Noted. Yes. He said that he was not sorry and that they deserved it. Oh, see, I was thinking there was going to be this, like, moment of remorse. He never appeared manic during the interview, did not appear to be having a psychotic episode at all, and never said that he was hearing voices or anything of that nature. 
He was asked if he loved his grandparents, and he replied, Sometimes I love them, sometimes I hate them. And when asked if they deserved what happened to them, Christopher replied, They had it coming. Now keep in mind, this is almost 24 hours later after committing these crimes. See, my... my Hurting heart for Christopher's diminishing a little it bit. Gets, I know in, it, in this moment. It's a roller coaster, honey. It, it I told is. you to strap in. It's twisty. I and need turning. to tighten my seatbelt mm-hmm. because I'm going through a lot of emotions here. Now here they are with a 12 year old child, two dead bodies, and a confession. But what do they do with that? So this would be South Carolina's youngest murderer and youngest person to be tried as an adult because of the le- legal difficulties surrounding his age. Christopher was placed in a juvenile facility, a place where he would stay for three years while evaluations were completed and the trial was being set. The judge that was going to be overseeing the case had agreed to let Pittman out on a $175,000 bond as the trial approached, but the condition was that he had to stay in South Carolina, and since he had just killed all of his family that lived in South Carolina, the rest of his family was still in Florida. Mm -hmm. So Grandma Dell and Great Grandma Ruth moved. They rented an apartment and they had to wait, actually had to move not knowing when he would be released. They had to wait days for him to actually be released. On Monday, January 31st, 2005, he's now 15, three years after the murder, murders is when his trial began. Wait, what? Three years. Remember how I said that because they've got a 12-year-old, what do we do with this? There's a lot okay. of evaluations, a lot of legalities. Okay. So they weren't really sure how yes. to... Do we try him as an adult? Do we try him as a child? So there's lots of crap that had to happen to figure that out. And in the meantime, he was in a juvenile facility. And it took... Oh, okay. Yep. There, he was there in, we go. Yeah, he was in the juvenile facility I was gonna for say, three years. Three yeah, yeah. years. and <laughs> Amber, okay. are you not listening to me when I'm telling my story, damn it? I am just trying to take it all in here. I'm wrecking you. I can tell. I'm interrupting the process. I am processing. broken. I know. Let me, I will, I'd like to say I'll put you back together, but I'm going to leave you feeling very unsatisfied. This is a <sighs> bad is, Saturday night date. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm not even getting dinner out of it. I know. That's not true. I did feed you earlier. But, oh, you know what? You did. I'm just, I did get I'm dinner just out of it. I'm leaving you unsatisfied. <laughs> this, this actually isn't, doesn't feel different for me. I don't know. <laughs> so, anyway, four days into the trial, he was released on bail for the first time in three years. Grandma Dell said that she wasn't worried at all. She had no fear of Christopher. What? Mm-hmm. Dell is just like, oh, it's just... There's Dell. Huh? I like the name Dell, too. It's kind of it's kind of badass. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Especially since it's not her actual name, but she's just like, Dell. I'm Dale. Call me Dell. Dale. Yeah. It reminds oh, me like a, like a, I'm Dale. <laughs> is she now an ice road trucker? Country, like, yeah, it sounds like a country, like, okay, I'm going to shut up I now. wasn't picturing it like that. We were going two different places with that. But I've seen pictures of her, so that might be why. So now Christopher was given a court-appointed guardian named Milton Hamilton. He's wearing suspenders. He has to be wearing suspenders. No doubt. Now the guardian's job is just what it sounds like, you guys, to be the guardian for the counsel of the minor and have the best interest of the child in every decision that's being made. This becomes very relevant information in just a minute. So just remember, Hamilton is his legal, I don't want to say legal guardian, that's different. It's his legal counsel. He is his court-appointed guardian. He is a lawyer and his job is to have Chris's best interest at heart. 
Christopher's defense attorney was Andy Vickery, a well-known defense attorney in South Carolina that takes on big pharma cases, especially if there's big money involved. Vickery's defense for the child was that he did not commit murder. He was under the influence of Zoloft, which was not suitable for a 12-year-old to be taking. And it was the Zoloft that drove Christopher to commit the murders. He said that although this is not the case of the majority of users of Zoloft, Christopher belonged to a very small, vulnerable subpopulation that the side effects had caused him to become violent. Yes. Let me just, I dropped that egg. Okay. You got it? I'm going to catch it. I've caught that egg. Okay. And it didn't break. Proceed. Nope. It has not broken yet. Now I'm going to... I'm going to throw another one. Oh, all right. The prosecution does not believe that Zoloft had an effect. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He was not remorseful as evidence from his statements to the police, and he simply did not like being disciplined. Remember how I had said that Pop Pop had disciplined him for mm-hmm. his behavior in school and church? Yes. Okay. He had an abusive and chaotic childhood, and he committed murder. That is what the prosecution is saying. And I'm so, I I can see both sides of this. Can you not? I was just thinking, I see both arguments in this case. I really do. After the killings, he lit the house on fire, and he made up the story about being kidnapped. So he is rational enough to come up with that, Mm -hmm. which is not the behavior of someone who's being controlled by a substance. He used candles and stacks of paper to burn down in a slow burn. This was methodical and planned. This gives him plenty of time to get away. He stole weapons and money. He got he grabbed the dog. This, according to the prosecution, is not done by someone who is having an episode due to side effects of a medication. I see it. Okay. I get okay. it. Okay. Yeah, I, I see what they're saying. Now I also think that it's relevant to point out that although antidepressants do linger in your system and you do have to be weaned off from them, you shouldn't just stop them cold turkey. The reverse is also true, and it can take weeks before they fully take effect. Everyone is different. So this is November 28th, and he had only been taking the Zoloft a short time because a month earlier he was in Florida and had started the Paxil. So, and you do also have to take them at the same time every day, like the old school birth control pills. Uh Uh-huh. Well, my question is, did he stop the Paxil very abruptly and just start the other one? That's what I'm wondering. I feel like Zoloft kind of got a bad name in this when no one took into account the fact that he was first taking the Paxil and likely mixed them in his system. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they just dramatically stopped him from the Paxil and switched him to the Zoloft, I'm not educated enough in antidepressants to speak confidently about this, but as those are things I'm wondering. Same. Yeah. I don't know my meds well enough to say that that could be a factor, right. but I'm also kind of wondering if it could be a factor. Yes. Yep. Me too. Me too. At the time of the questioning, investigators believe that this was a meticulous and a cold crime. He supposedly loved them most in the world, but then left them to burn. His father, however, insists that Chris is innocent. Zoloft killed them. It's been on the market since the 1990s, and it's prescribed to more than 30 million people a year. Or, excuse me, let me rephrase that. It is prescribed more than 30 million times a year. Remember Grandma Del, Delnora Dupre? She does not believe that he's guilty either. Del helped raise Chris after her own daughter abandoned him. 
He then moved in with his father, who had remarried, and then back to Nan and Pop Pop, back to Del. He was bounced around. So Del takes that into account when she's giving reports on him. She's like, I'm not scared of him because Mm -hmm. I know the sweet kid that he is, and I know where he's come from, and it's been rough. So she's confident it was the medication and that is not how he is. Yes, yep. There was a report that I read where she was giving incidences where he had been in trouble before. And she's like, well, when you say it out loud, it sounds bad, but it's just kid stuff. And it was pretty aggressive things. I don't remember the specifics now, but I remember thinking to myself, um, none of my boys. So I have four boys. Mm-hmm. None of them did that. And they're not perfect by any means. And the ones that are listening right now, I said it. You're not perfect. Love you to death. Right? So, there, I do feel like there were some red flags. Now, shortly into the trial, the judge called the defense and the prosecution into his chambers to discuss a plea deal of voluntary manslaughter, which would come with a sentence of 2 to 30 years. The defense attorney, Andy Vickery, immediately turns down the plea deal. And notice that I said it was in the chambers, it was the defense and the prosecution, What about the court guardian, good old Milton Hamilton, with his suspenders? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Suspenders guy. Well, Hamilton was never made aware by the defense attorney, which is his job. He is the defense for the child. He's supposed to be keeping the guardian, the counsel guardian, Mm -hmm. informed. Mm -hmm. He did not tell the guardian that there was ever any talk of a plea deal. This is hella important. Yeah, that's a key piece of information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about what the defense presented during the trial. And keep in mind, this is what he does. So he's very interconnected with people who have had issues with medications. Okay? Okay. Parents and children started to come out of the woodwork at the time with their own poor experiences with antidepressants. Some were even parents who had had children complete suicide after starting the drug. I'm just going to jump in here and say that... Um, and working with a lot of people over the years, I have seen what antidepressants can do. I have seen people change moods or get suicidal thoughts okay. um, after taking them. Okay. And, that and is then very a med change, um, it was amazing what a med change could do. Could do. Okay. So I'm not saying that, you know, I do I know anybody that's gone this extreme? No, I don't. But I do know that those well, there the are, wrong meds. He is the only case that has ever went this extreme. There so, is no other cases that have ever committed murder as a result of their antidepressants. Which that's where it's like, which yep. side is it? Yep. Because the suicidal thoughts, absolutely, I could see that. Yes, yes. The murder, mm-hmm. I don't know. Now, the FDA now requires a black box statement to be placed on drugs like this that say it can increase suicidal thoughts and behavior in children and adolescents, okay? Dr. Richard Caput worked for the FDA for 14 years. Now, notice I said work to. Work to. Work He does not, did not, at the time that he testified, he did not work for the FDA anymore. Okay. And once... He was actually on the board of the clinical trials that had once approved Zoloft. He is no he no longer works for them, like I said. The meds he testified that the meds drastically alters the chemical makeup of a juvenile and can cause them to become violent and increase anger. The defense attorney he does these cases a lot, so it is possible that he's like, Oh, I've got a guy who used to work for the FDA. Obviously, this doctor has very 
legit and serious concerns Mm -hmm. about antidepressants. And so he's willing to go on the stand Mm -hmm. and, and make these statements. So, okay. Dr. Lynette Adkins, a forensic psychiatrist, claims that Pittman was temporarily insane when he killed his grandparents due to the Zoloft. The side effects were so intense that he heard command hallucinations that ordered him to kill his grandparents. He had no control over killing his grandparents. She attempted to explain away the fact that he had carefully planned and carried out his actions before and after the murders by saying that the period of time that he was psychotic was very brief. So that's why his attempts at covering up his tracks and the fire and all that story happened. Then she testified that being withdrawn and unemotional when found was another side effect of the medication. So this is why he appeared that way during the questioning, if you remember me saying that. Now, she also did make a statement that many of her colleagues were surprised that she would testify for the defense. Really? Again, I think this is somebody that this lawyer, who often takes on the pharmacy cases, has to fall back on for, that can testify intelligently to these things. And remember, at the time that he was questioned, he had never said he was hearing Voices. I, I was actually just read my mind. I was just going to ask you if he ever reported the hallucinations because I don't no. remember hearing that. No, he did not. And you know, uh, as all defense attorneys do, they sit their client down and they come up with their defense. And I do feel like this was the work of the defense attorney. Sure. That's... You had hallucinations. They told you to kill your grandparents. Mm-hmm. So that's just my personal belief. Prosecutors believe that his abusive childhood is relevant because his grandfather had paddled him for his earlier behavior that day and that it was a trigger. Remember, he doesn't mm-hmm. like to be disciplined. You uh, also have, oh, sorry to no, cut you ahead. off, but you also have this other piece that mom had come back into his life mm-hmm. and then she left pretty Literally the harshly. Same, I mean, it's the same month. All of this happened in the same month in October. Yep. So there's just a lot of things. I mean, the killing happened in November, but you know what I'm saying. His mom leaving him running away, uh-huh. him starting the Paxil, all of that. Then getting... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It all kind of happened in the same it did. close time frame. Yes. And so I can't help but wonder if it all just came together yes. for this... Horrible Horrible. disaster. According to an article in the Herald, there was a lot of evidence showing that he knew exactly what he was doing. The psychiatrist who evaluated him just hours after the murder, Julian Sharman, testified... Like the toilet paper? Like the toilet paper! (laughs) Just wanted to clarify. A lot of people call me that, too. So I'm... I'm sorry, dude. Or girl. Julian... Ah, dang. Julian can go either way either. I'm unsure if this is a man or or a woman. Anyway... Sorry, Julian Sharman testified for the prosecution and recalled that Chris had blatantly stated his, when he was asked if they deserved it, like he blatantly stated they deserved what was coming, was to, coming them. to them. Yep. They, he literally quoted, they asked for it. And when asked if he loved his grandparents, he responded with, I love, sometimes I love them and sometimes I hate them, which my kids could probably say at any given time too. Right. I mean, that's pretty common for a kid (laughs) that age. It is. In general. So Pfizer, who makes Zoloft, testified that there is no link to homicide at all in any clinical trials, and there were no cases where someone escalated to homicide. Chris did not testify because he was only 15. 
He did do an interview with 48 Hours right before his sentencing. He had not been on antidepressants for three years at this time. He does believe it was the medication. He claims that he was not aware that he was going to go and get the rifle. When he laid in bed, he became overwhelmed with anger. It was intense, and little things would set him off. He told investigators that he had become very angry because his grandfather had paddled him, but now, three years later, he's claiming that there was no discipline and that he killed only because the voices in his head told him to. So now he's saying that there was some voices. Yes, now he's claiming he was not disciplined for his behavior that day in church and in school. Okay. And it was only the voices if that does not sound like a defense attorney coaching, I don't know what Yeah, does. the story changed. Dramatically from when he, from what he told investigators 24 hours after doing this to, or nearly 24 hours, to after he got to speak to his lawyer. You know, I would have been curious about an assessment then, an evaluation, and then when the, the meds were out of his system, just mm-hmm. to see, like, okay, is there a difference yeah, in the emotion? Is there a, a difference in the behaviors? I just would have been curious I don't, about that. I don't know. Um, I did not look that up. That is an excellent point. I will tell you that watching him during the trial, watching him during the 48-hour interview is, and I know you would get the same in, as someone, we do assessments on people mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something very cold and distant there for sure. And at that point in the, during the 48 hour interview, he had not had antidepressants in his system for three years. Do I also found no, it, even uh, at that time. It, uh, and see, when I say that, I feel like people who have seen this episode of 48 hours or watch it later are going to be like, but wait, I mean, he was crying at the trial. That doesn't mean a lot to me. I just I don't know. You gotta you gotta to watch, watch it. it and see because there there were even some times where he was smirking. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, because at the beginning of this, it really seems like he was close to them. He he adored them. He yes, wanted to be with he them. He most certainly was. Yeah, he definitely was. I don't know what you know. We don't know what really caused the shift. They're saying it's the medication. Or is it all the childhood trauma? So what he was saying was that the voices were loud and and said, and they just kept saying, kill, kill, kill. He claimed that he thought it was a dream. He has found peace with himself. And then the trial came and it all came back to him. That's what he was saying. The thing that he was worried about the most was losing his family. Two days before his case goes to the jury, his father showed up. Now, his father had stayed away during the whole trial because his defense attorney told him to because of the accusations of physical abuse. The 48-hour episode asked about that, and he said, As I have gotten older, I realized that he's made a lot of mistakes that I could forgive him for because he did not because he did what he thought was right, and he said that his father did hit him with a belt or anything else and left him black and blue. Okay. His father, when interviewed by 48 Hours, adamantly denies it, of course. Yeah, I would question it, too, because abuse is common. It is. It's a common factor in some of these, Mm -hmm. I would say many or most of these cases that we cover. Yes. Trauma and abuse um, are both very common. So I would question it. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen the the guy. I don't know much about um, this other than what you're telling me. But I would question if abuse was a factor, too. Yep. 
I found this weird too. You know how he said that his dad denies ever physically abusing him? He told 48 Hours that he wants the murder weapon back someday because it holds, quote, special memories, end quote, with him. Oh. He literally was like, it's not the gun's fault. It's not the gun that did it. That gives me the little bit of the creepy creeps. (sighs) Me too. I just... uh, Yucky. No, I know. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like the way that makes me feel. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) In the 48 Hours episode, he actually told about how... When, when asked about the physical abuse, he's like, you know, I had a paddle that I would threaten the kids with, but I never used it. And actually, my dad even took it away from me. Mm. Oh, we've heard those statements a million times, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Things to make you go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. That came out of left field. I should probably edit that out. <laughs> or no. should you? Or, I don't know. No. I wasn't even um, on key. That was really bad. So sorry, you guys. During Now, during the closing arguments here, Barney Gass, the prosecutor, used a 410 gun with mannequin heads in his closing arguments as a demonstration, even showing the jury how close he had to be and painted the whole gruesome picture for them. Wow. So he, like, shot it in the courtroom. He he had the heads, the mannequin heads, right there, lined up right by the jury, like showing them he was this close. That is a bold I know. move. I know. Barney Gas, get it, like, man. Barney Gas has some Woo! balls. He does. Like, he that does. That ended really badly. I, it, I don't know if he actually shot or if it was just like a oh, pellet. Or what kind of demonstration? But I well, I saw in the interview. You can watch, you know, a clip. They insert like a little clip mm-hmm. and show him just up there wielding that gun right at those mannequin heads in front of the jury. It was profound. Where I was like, oh damn! I did notice too. Pittman looked away. He mm-hmm. could not watch that. But yeah, to paint a picture of what happened, though, not a bad move. Right, um, I agree. Probably pretty impactful for the jury. Mm-hmm. On February 15th, 2005, after seven hours of deliberation, Christopher Pittman was found guilty of murder. Now, his defense attorney, Andy Vickery, was pissed. Because think about it, he could have taken a plea deal. Yeah. Yeah. The judge issued the most lenient sentence allowed for a guilty murder verdict for the state of South Carolina, which was 30 years. So initially, he was sentenced to 30 years when he could have taken a plea deal. That could have been anywhere from 2 to 30. I was going to say the range for that plea deal, 2 to 30 some years, that's a pretty broad range. Yes. Now, remember what I said earlier about Milton Hamilton being Pittman's court-appointed guardian, and he was never aware of the meeting in the judge's chambers about the plea bargain. Mm -hmm. In 2010, Christopher was granted a new trial based on ineffective counsel because Hamilton testified that he would have 100% had... Pittman take a plea deal if that had been brought to his attention and he like and he would have uh tried to advocate that 10 years was sufficient for a 12 year old boy for this type of crime given these circumstances okay instead okay. of 30 so in December 2010 he enters he gets to enter into a plea deal of voluntary manslaughter and his sentence was reduced to 25 years with time served Pittman's not eligible for parole but if he has no prison problems, in, which so far he has not, 
he will max out at 85% of his 25-year sentence in February 20 on February 22nd, 2023. So it is expected because under South Carolina law, it's like 80, you've served 85% of your sentence. Uh-huh. Here you go. Wow. He will have spent 22 of his 34 years on this earth in, in prison. prison. Can you imagine? I mean, and, and he went to prison. I mean, as a 15 year old boy. I'm not going to lie. I fear for this now man that will get out in a couple of years and what that's going to be like me too not even fearing for him but for i mean the community maybe i don't I know, know. i don't want to say, say he'll still be right? dangerous i isn't, don't want to assume isn't that, this but... so controversial but where is he going to reoffend just so he can get put back into prison where he's the only place he's ever known really wow yeah it's you got me good with this one this yeah. is a heavy I do. I do like to fuck you up sometimes. (sighs) Mission accomplished. Just, and the other thing is, is that, I don't know, it's so controversial to me because I've worked with so many children that are heavily medicated Uh and they're like zombies. Uh I mean, they're barely. I have seen that too. Functioning through the day. And so I know how profound of an effect it can have, but at the same time, this seems very well thought through, premeditated. He covered his, I mean, he took the dog, he covered his tracks. I don't believe he was having hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess where I lie in this is somewhere in the middle. He probably would never have killed his grandparents had he not had his mother abandonment, father issues, suicidal thoughts, and the pres- mixture of the prescription cocktail. That's where I'm at with it. I, mean, I it's feel like all of it. Yes, I feel like all of that comes into play with this. I guess the big question is: Would he do something like that again? Right. I don't we know. We don't know. Oh man, that's a and there's a tough really enough no case like this to compare him to. You know where uh, where the laws could even come up with something. I mean, he was 12. Yeah. The youngest murderer on file is four, by the way. Oh. Yeah. We may cover that case someday. God, I'll okay. really mess you up with that one. Okay. It wasn't in America, but I, I think I may delve, dip my toes in that, as you would say. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to prepare for that one. But 12 is, I just I just don't think that we can blame the Zoloft uh, completely. Does it increase violence? Probably. Like they were saying as a side effect, but I do think that it was a catastrophic what do I want to say, collision of all of these things that combined put this into fruition. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at with it. I, You know, it's hard to say what I feel about the sentencing, about him, you know, at going to point, prison. I, d- I don't know. At this know, point, but... I'm just more worried about how is he going to rehabilitate when he spent 22 years, very formidable years in prison. Mm-hmm. Prison. It's going to be really hard. Yeah, I think so. I have worked with several clients before who have purposely reoffended because they they're that's like, what they know yes and mm-hmm. prison's easier frankly than the streets he's so, got his developmental years spent right place to place possibly abuse mom's abandoned and now you have his teenage years mm-hmm. in prison i mean yeah. what what age did he go to prison was it 15 he was 16? 15 so when he was 12 he went to juvenile facility for three years which is still not good. Uh-huh. And and then 15 prison <sighs> until he's 34. Then we're going to, you know, release him when he's 34 years old and just be like, here you go, become a functioning member of society. 
scary. He's going to need a lot of family support. He's going to need a lot of help. And is it wrong? I still, there's part of me that still just, my heart just hurts for this kid. I mean, my, exactly. Not that's, excusing that's, what he did. I but. know. That's what's hard about this. And it's like, Joy, was there justice for Joy and Joe? I don't know that they would feel that way. This is, they loved him. Yeah. They and did. they knew he was hurting, and that's why they took him in. Oh, it's just hard, guys. Such a loaded case. It's hard. It was. So So there's that. Charnel always bringing you the... The heaviness. <laughs> All right. It's time for me to wash your gray matter, darling, with our little brain bath. I could use a little bath after I know. that case. I know. That one makes me feel icky. This one kind of reminds me of your guy who broke into the home with the pancakes. Oh, I've been William. Doing the burglar ones all of a sudden. Yes, William. He did I, the dishes, he took a nap. He was the polite, thoughtful burglar. Yeah, he was. I got I got a good one for you. This one's pretty thoughtful too. I found it on Odyssey.com. In 2011, 44 year old Terry Trent broke into a family home in Vidalia, Ohio. Have you ever been there? No, I've never heard of it. It's probably not far from us. I mean, really. We're neighbors with Ohio. Vandalia? Sorry, guys, if I'm butchering that. Anyway, he was there in Ohio, and he proceeded to put up Christmas decorations for the family after he broke in. Stop it. I, I couldn't make this up. And then he decided to take a break and plop down to watch some boob tube. Nice. That's what we used to call TV, and why did we do that? I don't know, but what I remember those that? days. Yeah. The family comes home, and here's some guy like, yeah, I'm watching your expensive cable for free. I put a tree up for you. Give but me a break. Yeah, I put the Christmas decor up. What more do you want? I earned it. Also... I do love decorating for Christmas, so how dare you steal that joy from me? I realize that most people are probably like, awesome, he put up the Christmas decorations. But for me, I'm like, you stole my thunder. Is it wrong? Part of me would have been grateful. Like, I (laughs) hate setting the tree up. It's a lot of work. If I had it setting out and somebody had done it for me, I probably would be like, all right, Kind of like the pancakes. You're like, I love me some pancakes, so it's fine, but I'm still going to call the police. Yeah. I I would be like nice effort, but that's t- not where the Christmas tree goes. <laughs> I don't I be, appreciate where you put those I decorations. I would be that person. Like obviously, the nativity scene goes to the center, not to the left. What are you thinking? All right. So police arrested him, and it was suspected that Terry Trent. Also, he has two first names, which you can't trust a guy with not, two you first can't, names. Never. No. If someone was trying to pick me up in a bar with two first names, not Done. happening. No. Nope. Uh, walking away from you. Little good old Terry Trent was high on bath salts, which <sighs> Terry. The article called a designer drug, and I had to laugh so hard at that. I once watched a guy run right through a sliding glass door when he was high on bath salts. Not for my a personal party. I was at work. It was an investigation. Thank you for clarifying that. I just realized. It's like, shit. I got are a, you hanging no, out with? I got a rough crowd. Rough crowd. No. I, um, I was there for an investigation for CPS, and he knew the jig was up. And instead of opening... He's I'm like, gonna, I'm going to go through this door. I'm not going to lie. I have run into a sliding glass door. I have too. Stone ass sober before because sometimes that Windex works too well. But this was not a home like that. It First of all, it was his home, so he knew the door was there. It 
was cold, so it wasn't open previously. You know, he knew. He was just so fucked up on designer bath salts that he went running straight ass through it, bleeding his way through the cornfield that he was trying to hide in. Did he get through the door? Oh, like, yeah, he got- 100%. He oh. ran right through the glass door, caught himself up real bad, and we just followed the blood trail. He was cowering in a cornfield. I mean, he could have, <laughs> like, like hey, opened it really quick to run away. No, nope, could have, but also, he didn't need to run. He wasn't under arrest. Oh, my best gosh. Best part of yeah, it that's all. The best, that is the best part. So I'm not, it was just the fact that he <laughs> got all wigged out because he was high on bath salt. Do you realize that you just gave the people two brain baths, <laughs> not just one? <laughs> <laughs> Bonus, everyone. I like to be thorough. <laughs> Because that is equally as good as this story. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So Ooh. then he was in trouble. Because it was <laughs> yeah. like, um, all right. Totally unnecessary. Yeah. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I mean, as much as you can enjoy 12-year-old murderers, uh, but yeah. controversial murderers. We finally got our website up and running. Please go to crimecuriouspodcast.com. And on there, you can actually subscribe for free to receive direct notification in your email when we upload a new episode. And then you can listen to the episode from that link in your email, or there's also a Listen Now tab on the website. So that'll be very helpful. And coming soon, we're going to have a donation um, page to help us keep in running if you are interested in donating and you will get extra content for that as well follow us on twitter at curious crime we have instagram crime.curious and on facebook we are crime curious podcast so please like us and comment all that stuff really helps keep us around if you're listening to us on a platform that plays podcasts such as apple podcasts or google spotify anything like that giving us a nice review helps those platforms to know that we're worth listening to and it helps keep us around so if you want to hear more episodes that would be really helpful also you can always send us a email at crimecurious at yahoo.com but anyway we hope you keep listening and we hope you keep it curious bye guys bye